Let's turn our attention to God's Word in John chapter 1. John 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In his gospel, John says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is how John describes what we have become, or we have come to call the incarnation. Incarnation. It's that wonderful moment in history when the divine Son of God, by the power of the Spirit and in obedience to the Father, took on human flesh. When he added to his person humanity, and in doing so, The one who was fully divine was now also fully human as well. This is what John means when he says, the word became flesh. He's already spoken earlier in the chapter to the divinity of the word. You remember at the very beginning of the gospel, John writes, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So it's this eternal word that becomes flesh. It is the divine Son of God who takes on humanity. So this means that in John's lifetime, something really amazing happened. God became man and dwelt among them. John adds to this another thing. As a result of the incarnation, they saw, they saw the glory of God. That's a significant phrase. Glory is a word that describes something or someone that is full of light, splendor, beauty, and majesty. Glory describes something that is brilliant, powerful, someone who is worthy of honor and praise, and in the case of God, worship. They saw the glory of God in the incarnate Son. So what is John saying here? He's saying that when the word became flesh and dwelt among men, that men, they saw the glory of God. It was the glory of the triune God, as he says, glory of the Son from the Father, and as he adds elsewhere, by the power of the Spirit. So this, what I've just described to you, is the very simple and also very profound truth of what we call the Incarnation. It's an essential doctrine. It's a basic truth on which the faith of every single Christian stands. And yet, to many people, the incarnation, and in particular its glorious aspect, is difficult to believe. It seems odd. It doesn't make sense. And maybe you've even felt that way as well. For one... While human nature is indeed glorious, reflecting the glory of God who made us, it's certainly not more glorious than God's nature, is it? To take on human nature, isn't that to take on something less? 
For example, Revelation 4.11 says, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. It would seem reasonable to say then that in becoming man, Christ took a step down, not a step up to glory. The point seems all the more important when we consider Jesus' life. These, the beginning of the gospel indeed comes with some miracles, but there's a lot of humility at the beginning. Born in a cattle stall, we sang earlier. Jesus' life, we know, was not the life of a king. He lived the life of a traveler. He was often estranged from people in power. He didn't have wealth. Even his own family thought he was nothing special for at least some time. And worse than an estrangement, Jesus was mocked, ridiculed, threatened, and even eventually killed. Does that sound like glory? Does that sound like someone who's full of light and splendor and majesty and beauty and power? To be born in a lowly condition, to be mocked and criticized, estranged, and eventually killed? So how do you think John saw the glory of God in seeing the incarnate Son? How did he see the glory of God in what seems to be mostly the humiliation of God? Well, to solve this paradox, some people have tried to understand the incarnation in some pretty unbiblical ways. For some, the puzzle is solved by removing as much as possible the humanity of Jesus Christ. You can think about it. We all know that God is glorious, so if we can distance Jesus from his humanity as much as possible, then we retain at least a measure, if not all, of his glory. That's the idea anyway. So, for example, think of the Greek heresy of docetism, an example where they believed that Jesus only appeared to be human. He, he just manifested himself, projected himself in this way. Not truly human, but appearing to be so. This is a view explicitly condemned in 1 John 4, 2 and 3, which says that every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. There are Gnostics in every century who have tried to leave behind the man of Christ, separating Christ from Jesus. Jesus, they say, was an ordinary man. A good man, perhaps, a a noble man, a courageous man, but ordinary nevertheless. Whereas Christ is a universal and divine truth, they say. A little better but still deeply problematic is the Apollinarian view that says that Jesus was human in his body and soul, but not his spirit. And we could go on and on and on, listing ways in which people have tried to either deny or distance Jesus from his humanity. There, of course, another way of dealing with this problem of the glory and the incarnation. While some people deny his humanity... Other people want to deny his divinity. The Ebionite heresy, for example, sees Jesus as only a human person, but distinguished, yes, by making himself glorious through justifying himself and by so doing, showing all of us that we too can justify ourselves before God. 
The heresy basically is saying that Jesus is the one who climbed the holy hill, was declared as justified, and if we would just follow after him and do the same, we too would go from uh, sinful humanity or broken or less than to a glorious, uh, perhaps even divinity. Adoptionists and modern-day liberals do the same thing. Even where Jesus' divinity might be affirmed in part, it's downplayed. Not because they don't want to see the uh, glory of God, but they want to see the glory of God in the ascension of man. Man finally working together as a brotherhood to create great things, to be a great people, to rise up above all of our sins and trials and troubles, and to show our glory to all the world and perhaps even to God. Now, it's, of course, true that we do see the glory of God in Jesus' works. We see the glory of God in the example he sets before us, but nowhere does the Scripture teach that we are justified alongside of Jesus, just a bunch of men and women doing their best. No, the Scriptures say that we are justified in Jesus because of Jesus. Romans 5.19 makes this very uh, specific It tells us by this one man's obedience, we are made righteous. We're not made righteous by making ourselves glorious, but by being found in him who was glorious for us. Paul also says in that chapter, it was by his blood that we are justified and saved from the wrath of God, not by our blood or the sweat of our brow. So here we are, Goldilocks. We've tried one bed. We've tried the other. Where do we go now? Well, after a couple dead ends, let me remind you the problem. How can the incarnation, the taking on of flesh like us, of the divine Son of God, be a revelation of the glory of God? How can the incarnation, which involves earthly created things, which involved sin and suffering and curses and death, how can John be right? How can that be about glory? Some try to avoid this problem by denying Jesus' humanity. Others try to avoid this problem by denying his divinity. Is it possible for us to be orthodox and firm in the scriptures? Yes, it is. John wasn't confused when he wrote this. John didn't get it wrong. Nor did Paul when he wrote in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, that God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let me read that again. That God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He's saying what John says. We saw him, we came to know Jesus, and in his face, we came to see the light, the knowledge of the glory of God. Well, perhaps I've been a little bit unfair in leading you down these rabbit holes, because the answer has been right before us all along. And it's in the last phrase of this verse. Again, John 1 Verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The reason so many of us have trouble connecting glory with incarnation is that we miss this phrase, full of grace and truth. We miss the all-important fact that the glory of God as manifested in Christ is indeed full of light and splendor and beauty and power and majesty and all the things we so desperately want for this life and are promised in the life to come. It's there, but it doesn't come by the power of the sword. It comes to us through the power of the cross. God, who is true, has promised from the very beginning of our disobedience to save us from our sins. He didn't promise to save us after we climbed the holy hill to be justified before God alongside of Jesus Christ. He saved us while we were yet sinners, while we were yet ungodly. Christ died for us. That's the grace part. A, a, a promise of grace that God had made from the beginning And in Jesus, he answers this promise. He fulfills that promise. He keeps that promise, and he does so by giving us this gift of grace. The reason many people miss the glory of God in the incarnation or try to monkey around with Jesus' natures so that they can find a glory there is because they are mistaking grace for weakness, humility, for being soft, a gift for lacking conviction. But how could you call what God is doing anything less than glorious? First of all, there are all the glorious miracles surrounding his birth, displays of power and light and majesty and all the rest. What could be more glorious than a virgin conceiving, than a woman becoming the mother of God? Then there's the fact of Jesus' life, his perfect obedience, his perfect submission to God's will. Totally unique in human history. Who has done that? There is one person who's ascended the holy hill of the Lord and planted his flag and proved his justification. Jesus. That's a glorious thing, isn't it? There's, of course, then also the cross. Let me ask you, was it by weakness or strength that Jesus went like a lamb to the slaughter? Was it in weakness or in strength that the Father poured out all his wrath on his Son for the sins of his people? Was it in weakness or in strength that God was able to bear the weight of all of our sins, even to the point of death, and yet still rise victorious over sin, death, and the devil putting them all to shame. That is glory. That is power. It is majesty. It is magnificent. It is splendid. And it is full of beauty. But it's a particular kind of beauty. It's a condescending beauty. It's a a beauty that is giving a gift. It's a beauty that gives us grace. John didn't get it wrong. We get it wrong. Because we overestimate ourselves and think we're not in need, or we underestimate God and think that he's not really doing the best things he should do. And so when we look at something like the incarnation, we say, 
well, God isn't really reaching his full potential. He's lowering himself somehow. When all along God is manifesting his awesome power and his his glory to save you. To bring us out of sin and death and out from under the curse by his power. So thanks be to God that John didn't miss it. At least not forever. And along with the other gospel witnesses, he tells us about the good and glorious news of God's work in the world. And you know what? That work of the incarnation is still going on. Jesus' humanity didn't end the day after Christmas or the day after Easter. When Jesus rose from the dead, when Jesus later ascended into heaven, he did so in both his divine and human nature. And now Jesus sits fully man and fully God at the Father's right hand, interceding for us, watching over us, taking care of us, ruling us, defending us, pouring out gifts on us, on and on and on and on. God did not make a mistake. John, his servant, didn't get it wrong. There is great glory in the incarnation. And when we think about Jesus, even as a baby, we don't have to pretend away his humanity as if he didn't do all normal human baby things. Or we don't have to divert our eyes from his divinity and simply see ourselves in him as a manifestation of a great example of what human potential can be. No, John tells us to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, but to see it according to his grace and his covenant-keeping promises. This is his gift to us. I hope you'll receive it. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, what an amazing thing it is to have a perpetual sacrifice for our sins in Jesus. What an amazing thing it is that you orchestrated all these events of human history, each and every moment, to make these events coalesce, that in the fullness of time, Jesus Christ would be born of a woman under the law so that we might be redeemed, saved from the, um, the curse that was owed to us, and that we might be brought into the newness of life. We ask that as we think about these things, as we treasure them up, pull them up, and ponder them in our hearts, that Jesus would become closer and closer to us. Jesus, not as we imagine him, but Jesus as he is, fully human and fully divine, all to the praise and glory of God. Amen.